Have you always thought the Old Testament feasts were only for Israel? If so, you may be in for a surprise today, right here on Messianic Perspectives. Shalom and welcome to Messianic Perspectives, a daily program where we look into the scriptures from a distinctive first-century Jewish point of view. Today, our Bible teacher is Dr. Gary Hedrick, president of CJF Ministries. Gary's topic for this current series of studies is the Spring Feasts of the Lord. He's explaining how the seven feasts in Leviticus 23 are not only significant in themselves, but also how they collectively form an exciting outline of God's prophetic plan leading up to the second coming. I'll be back at the close of the program with news about a special offer. And now, here's Gary. Alright, thank you and welcome, listening friend, to another edition of Messianic Perspectives. It's good to have you with us today as we continue this study of the Spring Feasts. And in case you're just joining us, these feasts were special appointments during the year when God told his people to meet with him, to come to him. Three of these feasts were pilgrim feasts, where they actually went up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And the spring feasts, of course, are the ones that occur during the spring and summer months. They are Pesach in Hebrew, or Passover, Chag Hamatzot, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then Yom Habikarim, which is the Day of First Fruits, and finally, Chag Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. And if you have a Bible handy, you might want to follow along with us in Leviticus chapter 23, because that's where God actually outlines those seven feasts. Now, we're ready to begin our study of the Day of First Fruits, but let's tie up a few loose ends first. Because when we were talking about Passover and unleavened bread, we said the fact that leaven had to be purged during the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread points to the fact that Jesus was the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. Because leaven is always a symbol of evil in the Bible. So any symbol for the Messiah must be without leaven or without sin. But we had some phone calls from people wanting to know if I was aware that leaven is not always a symbol of evil in the Bible, because I said it was. And, you know, I was afraid someone would call me on that, but I didn't want to elaborate on that program because we were running out of time. So let me see if I can explain it now. The passage everyone wants to know about is Matthew thirteen thirty three, where the Lord says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until all was leavened. So because this is a reference to the kingdom of heaven, the leaven here must be good they say. And if you look in 99% of the commentaries, or if you ask 99% of the professors in our seminaries, they will tell you the leaven here is a symbol of the pervasive nature of the kingdom of God, and how the kingdom of God will grow and spread until it takes over the world. But there's something wrong with that interpretation, my friend. And again, this is where the messianic perspective will put you at odds with 99% of Christendom. But you know what? I would rather be on the right side and be in the minority rather than be on the wrong side and be in the majority. Wouldn't you? 
Now, let me show you what's wrong with this interpretation. First of all, every other instance in God's word where leaven is mentioned, it stands for evil. It's associated with evil. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He told them to beware of the leaven of Herod. And in the Old Testament, over and over again, they are told to avoid leaven, to purge the leaven. So it is consistent throughout the Bible from cover to cover, leaven is a symbol of evil and its influence. Now watch this. When you have a symbol like leaven, and it's used the same way consistently over and over again, don't you think that's a pretty good clue as to its meaning? And don't you think we should be just a little suspicious of someone who says, out of 21 mentions of leaven in the Bible... It stands for evil 20 times, and then one time it means just the opposite. It's like evil, 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 good, evil, 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 evil. You see, that's what's wrong with this interpretation. That one passage stands out like a sore thumb. And I'm sorry, but I really don't think the Lord operates like that. He doesn't set up a perfectly consistent symbol used the same way throughout the Bible, and then all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, use it to mean something just the opposite. You say, Gary, what are you saying? Are you saying the kingdom of heaven in Matthew thirteen thirty three is something evil? How can the kingdom of God be something evil? It doesn't make any sense. Oh, yes, it does make sense, my friend. First of all, we need to understand that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are basically interchangeable terms. Matthew is the only gospel that talks about the kingdom of heaven. Melekut Hashemayim is the Hebrew. And some people have inferred from that, the fact that Matthew is the only one that mentions it, that it must mean something different from the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is Melekut HaElohim. And by the way, I'm using the Hebrew word here because that's the language Matthew was originally written in. You understand, don't you, that what we have now is an English translation of a Greek translation of an original Hebrew gospel according to Matthew. And again, we're back to this same issue of looking at the scriptures from a messianic perspective. You see, Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. That's why the Gospel of Matthew presents Yeshua as the promised Messiah of Israel. Matthew has more references to messianic prophecy than any other book in the New Testament. Another distinguishing feature of Matthew is that he doesn't bother to explain Jewish customs which seems to indicate that he assumed his readers didn't need an explanation. So again, all indications are that Matthew's audience was Jewish. That's why he uses this phrase, kingdom of heaven. This is a Jewish phrase. It comes from the reluctance of Jewish people to pronounce the name of God. So instead of saying the kingdom of God, they'll say the kingdom of heaven. Melakut Hashamayim, literally kingdom of the heavens. Even today, the rabbis talk about the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. The Talmud refers to the kingdom of heaven. The Jewish zealots who lived in the second temple period 2,000 years ago said they wanted to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. According to the Encyclopedia Judaica, the ancient sages of Israel urged the Jewish people to accept three yokes or three responsibilities. First, the yoke of Torah. 
Second, the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. And third, the yoke of the mitzvot, or the good deeds. So when Yeshua talked about the kingdom of heaven, he was using terminology his Jewish listeners recognized. But even the ancient sages of Israel recognized that the kingdom of heaven has different manifestations. They even saw the Roman Empire as a sort of counterfeit kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 13, it says in verse 11 that he's talking about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, do you remember what we said a mystery is? The biblical definition of a mystery? We said it's something that was concealed in the Old Testament, but has been revealed in the New Testament. So in Matthew 13, he's revealing certain aspects of the kingdom of heaven that were not previously understood. And one of those aspects is that there will be a counterfeit kingdom of heaven existing side by side with the authentic kingdom of heaven. That's why he says in another place that at the end of the age, he separates the wheat from the tares. He separates what's real from what's not real because they're going to grow side by side until when? Up until the coming of the Messiah. That's when this sorting out of the real from the counterfeit takes place. And so that's what he's talking about in Matthew 13. And seven times in this chapter, Matthew 13, he says the kingdom of heaven is like something. It's like a pearl. It's like a farmer who sows his seed. It's like a mustard seed and so on. Seven times. And each of these seven parables reveals an aspect of the kingdom of heaven. And one of those aspects is that as history continues to unfold, the counterfeit kingdom of heaven will grow and grow and grow like it's going to engulf the world, like leaven. It will start out small, but it will grow and spread and ferment until it looks like it's just going to gobble up the whole world. We have a teaching on Matthew 13, by the way. We have it on cassette. It's called Seven Secrets of the Kingdom. But the point is that leaven is always symbolic of evil, and that includes the reference in Matthew 13. The counterfeit aspect of the kingdom of heaven is apostate Christendom, apostate religion in the name of Christ. And you you can see how this huge religious monstrosity has expanded over the centuries and swallowed up the masses of humanity over the past 2,000 years. There are multitudes of people all over this world who have all kinds of religion, but they don't know Jesus Christ. They have all sorts of superstitions, but they don't know him. They have candles and altars and rituals and icons and incense and all the trappings of religion, but they know nothing about a personal relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ, Adonai Yeshua HaMashiach. You see, would it surprise you if I said Jesus was not a very religious person? You say, Gary, you've got to be joking. He started his own religion for crying out loud. How can you say he wasn't a religious person? Because he wasn't. Do you know what religion is about? It's about man trying to pick himself up by his bootstraps and reaching up to God, trying to please God, trying to do things to get God's attention, trying to gain God's approval. But do you know what Jesus was about? He was about God reaching down to man. You see, that's the difference.
Well, that's all of our time for today. We've still got some loose ends to tie up before we move on to the day of first fruits. So we'll try to get that done next time. Until then, this is your friend Gary Hedrick saying, Gary. God bless and you. Thank Take you, care. listening Bye-bye. friend, for tuning in today. It's always good to have you with us, whether you're listening from home, at work, or in your car. This is Messianic Perspectives, and you've been listening to Dr. Gary Hedrick talking about the Spring Feasts of the Lord, the seven annual meetings outlined in Leviticus 23. We have all the programs in this series available in a set of three CDs packaged in an attractive binder for a suggested contribution of just $18. That's the three CDs entitled The Spring Feasts of the Lord by Dr. Gary Hedrick for a gift of only $18. Just visit our secure online store at MessianicSpecialties.com to place your order. If you would prefer to order by mail, just address your request to Messianic Perspectives, P.O. Box 345, San Antonio, Texas, 78292. To order by phone, use our toll-free order line from the U.S. The number is 1-800-926-5397. Have you enjoyed this edition of Messianic Perspectives? Why not continue to learn about the Jewish roots of your Christian faith by inviting a speaker from CJF Ministries? Call our toll-free number 1-800-926-5397 and we'll be happy to handle all of the details. And as always, when you're in touch with us, please mention the call letters of this station. If you're listening to our webcast or podcast, we need to know that too. I'm Liz Aiello. Join us next time, won't you, as Dr. Gary Hedrick continues our series of studies on the Spring Feasts of the Lord, right here on Messianic Perspectives. Perspectives is sponsored by CJF Ministries of San Antonio, Texas, and is made possible on this station by the free will contributions of our listeners in this area.